Turn on the equalizer. Boom, boom. We're rolling. Okay, we're rolling. And... Rolling here. Here we go. Welcome to the God of Honeybees podcast. I'm glad you're here. this episode we have got updates from uh, our trip to Spirit Fest which was in Anderson Indiana a couple weekends ago um, and then we're gonna finally dive deep into this book the origin of consciousness in the breakdown of the bicameral mind and that's by Julian Jaynes um, I've been excited about doing this book for a while because I've been reading it for a while but that's because it's so long I've been reading it for months and I think I'm just about halfway through the ebook version. It's like two volumes. And um, just a note about the author, like the way he has written this book, he's passed since passed for a while now, but his language is like a little bit dense. So it t- it's, I'm, I'm reading it slowly, but we're finally going to get started on it. I'm really excited because the, I, I think like the gist of what I want to talk about all the time in this podcast is kind of summed up in this book in a way. So that's going to be good. We're going to get into that. Also, if you can hear some heavy breathing in the background, my dog is sleeping basically by my feet, so you're probably going to hear his heavy breathing the whole time. Also, as is custom, tonight, drinking two brothers Atom Smasher and two brothers Pinball Juicy Hop Pale Ale. It's all right. It's not the best, but it's all right. Okay, so uh, really quick at the top, I want to thank people that have signed up for the email newsletter. Um, Again, you can get to that on godofhoneybees.com right at the front page. And then I think there's also... um, and there's another link on the contact, so it's it's all over the place on there. But godofhoneybees.com is where you can get on that. Um, a while back now, I saw on Twitter, uh, Tracy, if you're listening, I'm going to tag you in the episode to, to try to catch your attention. But I remember seeing that you posted that picture um, that the sticker that I sent you with the thank you note, whatever got to you. Honestly, I, I was surprised that it took so long to get there. I didn't think it would take that long, but um, I was happy to see that. Again, that was a little while ago now. The reason for the delay for uh, how long it's taken for this podcast to come out is because, well, one, daily life. You know, both of us, are my wife and I work full-time, toddler full-time, um, and my classes have started up again. Um, I'm going to school for environmental science and those classes have started up so that's obviously got to take precedence over my passion projects but hey I'm still it's still coming it's still on its way so anyway thank you Tracy for uh, posting that picture and tagging me in it that was pretty awesome to see um let's see what else if you want to get additional information on the content that is in these episodes Um, I create this readable, printable PDF copy of the episode, um, as well as if I, I've still got them right now, so as long as I still have them, I'll send you a free 
God of Honeybees podcast sticker or coaster right to your door, completely, completely free, little thank you note just for signing up. So you get a free sticker or a coaster, you get links to all the extra stuff, all the resources that are in the episode, um, and then you get the uh, printable PDF if you want. Also, speaking of the PDF, the first one I put out, I, I had to do all on my own, and it was okay, it wasn't bad, but um, the editor that I'm working with, Patience Ullman of 29pilgrims.com, she has agreed to uh, edit uh, website website content and the transcripts that are already on there. And then going forward, um, all I have to do is reach out to her, and if she's available, she'll edit the transcript, or the, not the transcript, but the um, the PDF version of each episode. And it'll, it'll be much more coherent and, and pretty looking and formatted right, so... So get on it, sign up for the email newsletter because um, things just keep getting better and better. Speaking of the book, that's getting closer. Um, so I'm going to reach out to the people that are on the email newsletter first for any kind of pre-order deals that I can do, any information about where it's going to be posted, anything like that uh, is going to be uh, sent to the people on the email newsletter first. So hop on that. I'll send you a sticker or a coaster right to your door. And again, you can get that at godofhoneybees.com, right on the front page. And if you miss it, I'm pretty sure if you're on the page for like 10 seconds, a pop-up will come up and ask if you want to sign up anyway. So you can't you can't miss it. Um, also, I've got Patreon up and running. Uh, right now, it's just one tier. It's uh, just five bucks a month. If you feel like you can swing five bucks a month to support the show, because, you know, obviously it costs to keep the website up um, monthly takes a lot of time to put this kind of stuff together this might cost money these brews cost money you know what I mean so if you can swing five bucks a month uh, it'll like I said help keep the website alive and help me help me maintain this project um, if you can't if you feel like you're in a position where you can't do that don't worry about it because like I said this is my this is one of my passion projects so these videos are going to come out anyway but if you can I would greatly appreciate it. So, patreon.com, just search The God of Honeybees, and the page is right there. Right now, it's just the one tier, and I've got, uh, I believe I have listed the benefits, you know, what you get for throwing in five bucks a month, but patreon.com, take a look at that. Um, if you're interested in the topics that I'm diving into on the show in general, but especially this one, because like I said, it's such a, it, it's such a fundamental concept to what I am aiming to always get to on the show, um, then you'll definitely like my book. It's going to be, Patience is going to be able to start editing it um, about mid-October, mid-late October, so probably by mm, beginning of December maybe, definitely by Christmas, the book will be available. Um, so if you like this stuff, uh, you like these topics, you want to dive deeper in some of these topics that I bring up, I'm pretty sure you'll like the book. Um, let's see. Let's do some updates about the book. Another author that I'm a big fan of agreed to take a look at the book and let me know what they think. Um, I, I, when I reached out to him, I specifically said, you know, I explained how his work has influenced the ideas, some of the ideas that I bring up in my, my own book and that I'm interested in these authors or any kind of creators that have helped shape my ideas in my book so much, 
I'm interested a in them in them reading it because I think that's pretty awesome for my my work to be in their hands that's like the best everything else is cherry on top at that point but to see if they would be willing to write a blurb for the book if if they are really interested or excited or passionate about the ideas that I've already presented like if they're on board then maybe I can get their support and plaster that right on the right on the cover of the book so we'll see um it got to him not too long ago again I I don't I don't know if they'd be all right with me mentioning their names um you know because it's not a business deal or something I'm just you know I'm a fan of their work so if they if they are later on I'll mention that but it got to him recently and based on his Twitter feed, he's very active, very busy, so I'm sure it'll, it'll be a little while before I hear anything back from him, but that's cool. I got I got nothing but time, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, the other author that I reached out to, I got some positive early feedback from her. Um, she definitely seems to like the book, um, but she said that she hasn't been able to finish it yet because all her reading that's not required for work she she does in the evening so the amount of time that she has dedicated to that is pretty limited so it's slow going but again she's doing me a huge favor so I I really appreciate it and I'm glad that like so far she's really liked the book that's that's a huge deal for me if she if she was kind of wishy-washy about it or said that she had some like issues with the ideas I brought up that'd be I'd have to start over so I'm really excited about that. That's really good. And then, like I said, um, mid to late October, Patience will be editing the book, which I'm really looking forward to. That's really a fun process for anyone that's curious about self-publishing or if you're listening and you've already published a book. That, for some reason, is a really fun process because like the whole time beforehand, it's just your ideas that you're trying to flesh out, organize, write down, convey clearly. But then when you when it's in the hands of the editor, I don't know if every editor works this way, but what I've tried to do with patience uh, in the way that like we're working on the book is ask her to, you know, she, uh, granted she's going to look at the grammar, structure, all that kind of stuff that I know nothing about. But I've asked her to do like an approach where we can make sure that the ideas flow correctly and then if any of the ideas haven't been like fully fleshed out then she'll let me know so the first time I sent her the manuscript she and I and I liked I didn't know that I would like doing it this way but like any ideas in there that she thought didn't really hold up she would let me know um, she would present counter arguments counter evidence and I think that only strengthened it like it, it forced me to clarify what I was trying to say, and then once her and I were like on the same page, then it was able to like grow. But if she if she wasn't willing to be like upfront and and lean into the ideas that I'm presenting so that they hold up, I, I would have a weaker a weaker idea, a weaker book. So I'm really, I'm really happy with that. So that's why I'm looking forward to this next round of editing because we get to do it all over again. And I really like it. Let's see what else. I've also got a book cover finally picked. I started out with a book cover that I made myself and then I read and saw and heard so many things that said, if you're a self publisher, 
the one thing you got to do is pay a professional to make your book cover. If you do nothing else, do that. And I remember hearing on one of my favorite podcasts, Mysterious Universe, um, they were talking about how like they can just look through Amazon and and just by the cover be like self-published, self-published, publisher, self-published. So I figured I better cough up the money and get someone to do that. So I found David Provolo. I hope I pronounced that last name correctly. I'd imagine it. It's Provolo. I found him on Readsy. So in the show notes, I will link to his Readsy profile. So if you're interested in his work or finding someone to do uh, a book cover for you, you'll have the link right there. His, his Readsy profile. Um, he sent me an updated version of the cover and I really like it. We started out with three versions that I think leaned more towards the spiritual aspect of the book and that was cool. Um, Some of them looked a little bit like they're right off the shelf in a Christian bookstore and that's not necessarily what I was trying to go for. One of them I I really liked but then I uh, we discussed going leaning more towards the science aspect of the book because I bring up a lot of that stuff um so he sent me this cover that's got I'm not sure if I'm allowed to post it yet because like the project's not complete but as soon as as soon as I get the okay from him it's going to be everywhere but it's got this like da Vinci's notebook kind of old science book vibe I think it's awesome so I'm really excited about that again if you want to find his work reach out to him to do some work I'm going to put his Readsy profile link in the show notes uh, so that you can you can get in contact uh, with him super easily lastly uh, pre-orders for the book right now I'm kind of in the middle of setting up a campaign on Publishizer if you listening have ever interacted or worked with Publishizer, let me know what your experience was like, because it it seems pretty straightforward, but I'm not 100%, I've never even heard of it before, so I'm not 100% sure on how it would go, but I'm working on maybe doing a campaign there, and it seems like if I do pre-orders, then it's kind of like Kickstarter or Patreon, where if you pre-order a book or a number of books, you get certain rewards in response for your purchase and that would of course be like only available on Publishizer before it's available anywhere else so I might do that Um, the other option is to just go ahead and put the pre-orders up on Amazon and that seems that seems a lot easier it's a lot less uh, stuff to have to worry about rewards and all this stuff Um, but either way once it's ready to go, like I've already got the ISBN number, I got the barcode, I got the book cover, I've got the dimensions, I've already like I'm like pre creating it in Amazon KDP so that as soon as patients and I have got it to a point where we think like it's ready, this is this is a independent book, then I'm just gonna upload it and boom, it'll be there. So uh, in future episodes as we get closer, I will um, I will let you know. Uh, what what the plan is for the pre-order books okay so with all those updates out of the way and a sip let's start with Spirit Fest which was in Anderson Indiana 
Okay, so this event was a couple of weeks ago now. Like I said, it's, it's been a little bit, but I felt like reviewing our trip up there anyway because it was kind of interesting. Um, my wife and I and our son, we all went up there. We were expecting booths that kind of like represented different spiritual practices, different religions, something centered around actual spiritual practice and exploration, you know, all, all different ideas coming together in one fest, basically. Unfortunately, um, a majority of what we saw were just booths selling handmade shit like jewelry, um, scarves, <laughs> incense burners, um, and that was about like there there was there was a few booths that weren't, um, but that was about it. And maybe it was just our expectations, but that was a little disheartening because it seemed so promising. And then it was basically just almost like a flea market kind of setup. It was strange. One booth was actually selling. There were these two elderly, maybe elderly. I don't know how old they were. Older people, older couple with this booth, like right at the end, and they were selling handmade wood things uh you know obviously that they've crafted themselves and they were of course overpriced for what they were but the my favorite thing that they were selling was this slab of some log that they cut that was probably if you're just listening to this um on the podcast you can't see my hand gestures right now but it was the log the slab was like almost double the width of my head like it was pretty pretty decent size they probably like lightly sanded it was stained they put clear coat on it but it was like an inch almost two inches thick and because it was rustic the bark was along the edges of the of the wood still so you know while the flat part was sanded down the edges were still rough with bark that's been clear coated on there and they had it labeled as a mouse pad and they were charging 25 bucks for this thing. Who the hell uses mouse pads anymore? Like this is it's not this isn't the 90s with a rubber ball mouse. Like it's all where's my mouse? It's all like this with a laser. I mean, you haven't needed a mouse pad since like 2000 and then $25 and then on top of that like who wants their wrist you get carpal tunnel in an hour. Who wants their wrist perched two inches in the air on a rough-edged piece of wood for their mouse pad? And I was just like, what the hell? So, anyway, that's just like a a perfect representation of what we were running into over there. So that was most of what we saw. Overpriced, kind of spiritually oriented knickknacks. However, one booth, like the, the weird, the thing that stood out about this next booth, I'm, um, booth I'm going to mention, is that when you were walking past these other booths that were selling things, you know, the ones that are spiritual practiced uh, or, or religions or whatever, they seem pretty open. You know what I mean, like welcoming people. But when you walk past the booths that were selling random things, they were. I just got this like really shitty vibe from them. Like, my wife was trying to buy these bracelets and then found out that they're still in the late 90s and only accept cash and, you know, you can't pay with your card. I'm like, well, welcome to 2019. But she couldn't buy the bracelets and she, that, that lady got all shitty. You know what I mean? So it was just kind of, eh, this is just kind of dumb. But we came across one booth where who 
granted, was selling products like I was just ranting about. But they were really great looking products. Um, this is from where I got I've got it in my notes what the name of the booth was Avalon Trading and um, the guy that was operating the booth his name was Digby so I'll put all I'll put his contact information in the show notes Digby if you're listening thanks so much for being so great because it was like meeting you was obviously one of the highlights of going there because I wanted to specifically shout out to you and Avalon Trading I'm going to put uh, I'll put Avalon Trading's Facebook page, I think is their kind of official operating page. I'll put that in the show notes too so you can find it and check out what he's got. But um, Digby was up from Florida selling his products and then my wife was talking to him and then I just kind of like kept walking a little bit down the way and then I was stop- I stopped and waited for her to finish up. Then she came up and she was tell- showing me this awesome rock Ugh, my nose is itching. This awesome rock that Digby like hooked her up with, uh, Labradorite, I think it's called. And I was like, oh, no way. And I had brought uh, the podcast stickers and coasters to try to pass out to all these different places because I thought they were going to be booths of like different spiritual practices and whatnot. I don't want to just give my stickers away to people just selling beehive-shaped incense burners. Like, that was dumb. But because Digby, like, was so welcoming, he was so nice, he just hooked my wife up with this kick-ass rock, I was like, oh, I gotta give him a sticker, and I want to, you know, meet him and whatnot. So I gave him the sticker, talked to him a little bit, like I said, found out that he was up from Florida, um, and then I got to, you know, I was taking a look at his different products just to see, uh, see what was up, and then he gave me this little stained glass dragonfly that you can, you know, probably hang up in front of the window or whatever. I was like, hell yeah. I mean, you know, he's, it's still a loss to him. He didn't have to do that. And then, um, you know, I shook his hand before I was leaving and he told me I have great energy and I was like, all right, cool. So Digby, if you're listening, thanks. Thanks again. It was nice to meet you. And again, I'll put links to his stuff in the show notes. Again, that's Avalon Trading. So aside from the booth selling tickets, there were a few booths that were centered around like healing practices or psychics. The place was freaking crawling with psychics. There was this one building that we went in, which I think must be like a cafeteria usually, because there was like there was some food set up and that place smelled like food. But you couldn't even like granted we had a stroller, but you couldn't even you could hardly move through the room because there were so many two person tables set up every single one of them occupied with a psychic it was just they were crawling with psychics um but there was also this thing uh the native american experience that was just set up in the middle of this field and i saw some lady like dressed up in what i'm guessing was supposed to be authentic native american garb or whatever and then we're walking past her uh, as we're kind of exploring, and she's putting on the Native American experience, air quotes, and all I hear is this, and no offense to Southern draw, all right, but I just hear this hillbilly lady talking about how she's a feeler, so that means I can feel things, and then it was it, like, then it ended. I was like, are you freaking kidding me? So, so that was bullshit, yeah. Um, what was most interesting 
about the festival wasn't necessarily the festival itself. Like I can't say that I recommend Spirit Fest because it was it was kind of a dud, and we drove an hour to get there, so that sucked. But the place where it was hosted is specifically interesting. It's a park which is again obviously in Anderson, and it seems to be like solidly dedicated to spiritualism. I can't remember the name of the park off the top of my head. I don't have it in my notes, but um, I'll find it and put a link on it because I'm pretty sure they've got a website. I'll put the link in the show notes. But as we walked around the park, we came across all these permanent structures that were representing spiritual leaders. There was a labyrinth which was just rocks on the ground, but it was a labyrinth. And then there was even a bookstore at the front of the park that was just full of every alternative religion you can think of, like from simple like chakra healing to meditation to cults, like specifically outright telling you it's a cult cults to Wiccan rituals, like everything was in this bookstore. So that's cool, but what was just so interesting is that they're there permanently. Like, it wasn't a pop-up thing. They're always there. Um, and then the park is surrounded by houses, like the front porches of these houses butt up to a walking path that circles around the house. Y'all excuse me, I think i am got a little bit of a cold. And each of these houses... Or almost every almost every one of these houses had a, a like a plaque on the front advertising like palm readings or or psychics or anything like that. It was just so weird. I'll I'll put some pictures I took of uh, one of the monuments that we came to in the show notes as well. It had busts of all these different spiritual icons, and then in the center it had like a it had a bust of Jesus. And each one had, like, what religion they were, you know, had Buddha, Buddhism, that kind of thing. So, but then there was one, this is what I'll specifically put in the show notes, for, oh man, I'm forgetting its name. It was a, it's a, a Egyptian god, I'm pretty sure. But it had all these little pennies on it. And then I started looking around and none of the other busts had pennies on it. So I don't know... I'll put the link in the show or the picture in the show notes so you can take a look. If you understand what that's about, I'm assuming it's some kind of offering, but pennies just seemed weird, and then they weren't on any other statue. So just take a look at that in the show notes. See if you understand what that might be about, because I didn't. I didn't have any other idea. To wrap that up, the park is impressive because it's in the middle of like what is basically middle of Indiana. So to have this park that is dedicated to spiritualism in general and to be able to have like that really dynamic bookstore and all these different permanent structures in the middle of Indiana and like be offering all these psychic readings and stuff, I'm just surprised that it is there. Um, That's kind of the last thing I would have expected to find in Indiana. But so I again, I don't really recommend Spirit Fest, but I would recommend checking out the park itself um, because all those like I said all that stuff is permanent structures so that was pretty cool Um, also where's my book hold on one of the many handouts I was given when we were there um, was for the Fetzer Institute which I will also link to in the show notes 
And one of the handouts for the Fetzer Institute had a link on it to get a free book from the foundation. So, of course, I did that because free book's a free book. So I'll just give you like a brief overview of the foundation since it's pretty interesting and it's in-depth. So once I get a chance to finish this book, uh, we'll, we'll do a full episode on the Institute itself and this book. Uh, the book itself is basically a biography over the founder of the Fetzer Institute, John E. Fetzer, all about his life. Um, I guess he was like a pioneer in radio broadcasting. He was a super wealthy individual. He was, I think the book says he was an advisor to a president. And then he had this like whole side life of spiritual exploration. So I'm guessing that's what the book's about. But again, we'll get into that later. Um, if you look at the Fetzer Institute's website, you'll find a learn more button right on the first page. And here's what a snippet, or here is a snippet, I should say, of uh, what seems to be their mission statement. Again, this is for the Fetzer Institute. Um, what I'm guessing is their mission statement here says, we the people have the power to shape our democracy. Working together, we can transcend the labels that polarize us and realize what unites us. We can cultivate sacred connections with our neighbors and build a shared vision for our communities and our country. So I'm guessing that's... Oh, then it goes on. From educators and philanthropists to religious and spiritual visionaries, we are partnering with leaders all over our country who are working towards this more loving world. Together, we are listening to and learning from students who are finding common values, citizens developing skills to communicate beyond political divides, and communities striving to heal after violent events. Which is kind of interesting because it's, it sounds so utopian, but it also sounds, I mean, it's like it's saying a bunch and not saying anything at all. But it caught my attention because while it sounds like they aim to operate within the framework of politics to make change because they're talking so much about democracy it also sounds like they're trying to reinvent or reshape the way that we operate um, in that framework so that's really interesting to me because like I said before I think per, it's just my own personal view that politics and religion have have run out of their purpose for us. I don't think they're a sustainable way forward. I don't think politics is going to be the way forward or religions. Um, but the fact that they're trying to like change the way we work in these pretty fundamental frameworks for society, that's pretty interesting. Uh, further down the page, there were links to projects that they're currently involved in. As far as where they put their time and money, it's kind of interesting. I read somewhere on their site, I'm not sure where, that they're not open to unsolicited submittals. They rather they just pick projects and initiatives on their own. Excuse me. So basically, I don't know if I mentioned this yet, but Fetzer Institute is basically like a giant trust fund and then they try to financially support projects that they think obviously align with their their vision of what of what needs to happen so i'm guessing that's why they're not open to unsolicited um submittals because they would just be bombarded 
um, with requests for money back in absolutely anything, you know. So I can see why they have to be insulated from that. However, the flip side to that is that they will obviously, I guess, only be supporting um, projects that align with their outlook. So that nothing wrong with that, but I feel like we need to examine pretty closely what that outlook is to make sure that it makes sense. You know what I mean? So one project that caught my attention was the Practicing Democracy Project. And again, you, um, it's under the project's link on their page, I think, so you'll be able to find it if you're interested. Um, and I'll put the link specifically for this project in the show notes because it's a joint effort between the Fetzer Institute and this other place called the Center for Spirituality and Practice. I've never heard of either of these places, but um, in the description of the project on um, the Fetzer Institute's page, it says, The project assumes that American democracy can flourish only when citizens are united at a deep level that transcends ideology, race, and class to a shared spiritual and moral vision of what America should be. Let's think about that while I take a drink. Okay, so I feel like this idea, I like this idea because it's, it's kind of, um, it's kind of like my own view. A spiritual transformation on an individual personal level is kind of what I think may be the only hope for us going forward. Not a new religion, um, but a personal shift in understanding. Um, uh, lost my train of thought. Anyway, it sounds like they're saying something to the effect of that we all need to be on team us or something like that. And I would argue that if we all truly were on that team, the society, like team us, team, not even team human beings, like team earth, basically, you know, everything that's included. If we were all truly on that team, I feel like the societal need for religion and politics would naturally dissolve at that point but that's a bit tangential to what they're putting forward anyway so here's what I mean about examining the outlook that they're promoting carefully the page for the project states on the project's website you'll find quotes on the language of democracy recommended books and book excerpts ways to honor democracy mentors and teachers which is weird um Practices to observe flashpoints in American history, art reflection, music playlists, and it just goes on and on and lists some other other resources. But what catches my attention here is where it says ways to honor democracy. So granted, I would need to investigate like the project itself more thoroughly to give it a fair assessment, but that phrase just sounds very odd, even though they're promoting equality among the human race, it still strikes me as weird. Honoring democracy. I'm assuming that they're devoted to some kind of idea of pure democracy, um, kind of the ideal, true democracy, because while they do reference America, they're operating within America, I get the impression that they think that this framework that they're, that they're trying to further can be, be applicable anywhere. So I think that they're kind of going towards a pure 
true democracy uh, approach. Um, I'm not 100% sure, but the spirituality, the center for the... Hold on, let me take this back. Okay. So, to be fair, looking through the different resources that they provide to align ourselves with their outlook, they are pretty good. Um, I can get behind that. Like, I, I went to the Center for Spirituality and, I guess called Practice, whatever it was, and they've got links for resources to help with that. And so, like, if you click on Anger, then there's, like, three TED Talks about how to utilize anger or how to interact with it appropriately. So, like, that's great. I can get behind that. Um, what I don't yet understand is how they see the institution of what I'm what I say pure democracy working out because for example in in pure true democracy majority rules right um, hence the reason for all the really kind of complicated stuff that goes on in our own country because if it was just straight pure democracy then majority always rules so for that to be a positive feature of the arrangement, like of of trying to get us as people to move into that framework and, and quote-unquote honor democracy, for that to be a positive thing, um, we have to ask whose rules are they playing by? We have to know that the majority that... Uh, in that in that pure democracy is operating with a moral compass that's aimed at the benefit for all involved otherwise pure true democracy does not directly correlate with ultimate freedom or technically even the flourishing of human beings now assuming that that majority are all on the same page let's say morally again we have to ask whose rules are they playing by and are those rules so fundamental to human existence that they can be applied to every culture in every place at every time? Because as near as I can tell, humans have been debating, fighting, killing, dying over what those rules should be. So I think it's a little bit presumptuous of this foundation to assume that they've landed this one-size-fits-all human religion um, for us all to follow and like honor I don't know like I said I've got to dive deeper into it and I'll read the book and then uh, possibly do a full episode on the book and them in the future and I was thinking maybe I, they've got a direct contact page maybe I'll reach out to them and see if I can't sit down to talk well not sit down you know but interview someone from there and see what they have to think because I'm not understanding how they feel like they've landed a set of moral guidelines that will excuse me, beer burps that will work for every culture, every person in every different place on the globe at any time, you know what I mean like that seems pretty presumptuous so we'll get into that later on alright now what the episode is all centered around. Let's get into the origin of consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind by Julian Jaynes. Man, what a title. Let me get a drink and get ready for this. All right. 
I'm going to try to take this slowly because, like I said, this is a dense topic. What we're talking about here is in this in this first part, I'm going to have to break this up into a multi-parter, but in this first part, we're going to explore kind of the history of approaches to understanding consciousness. So not necessarily yet what consciousness is, but kind of like how we got to here, how we got to our current understanding or interpretation, I guess I might say of what consciousness is. So I'm going to try to go slow because this is some dense material. It's taking me forever to get through it. I enjoy it, but it's taking me forever to get through it. So this is going to be a longer episode, but bear with me because I promise this stuff is so interesting and it's so critical, I think, to the to to all of us because it would directly influence the way that we move through and relate to the world. So let's dive into it. I want to start by giving you an overbook, uh, overview of where the book goes, kind of long term, because like I said, it is incredibly long. Um, what we're going to get into today is the history of the study of consciousness, like I said, and I think we'll kind of touch on what he argues consciousness is not, because that's where the book begins. He, he gives you this overview of the history of the study of it, and then he... Like, because he can't just come out and say what consciousness is, um, because we don't really know yet, he he cuts down what he thinks it is not. Um, what some assumptions of what consciousness has been in the past, he explores why it's not that. But we'll get into that, um, get into that in another episode. And then he goes from explaining what it's not to way in the past, like ancient, ancient, ancient history, like the oldest stuff that we can even uh, interpret or anything like that. And he kind of walks you through history to show you the evidence that he feels supports one of the main ideas in the book. And that idea, this is what kind of blew my mind as soon as I got into it. That idea is that early humans were not conscious in the same way that we are. So let that sink in. Let me say it again. His main idea is that early humans and not not like not not uh Neanderthal like you know like like ones that have written record that we can understand and interpret. So pretty recent early humans were not conscious in the same way that we are. And that's what we're basically going to deconstruct and explore as we move through this book. Uh, let's see. Anything else before we dive into it? Nope, that's it. So let's crack this thing open and get going. Julian, Julian Jaynes, was an American psychologist born in 1920, and he passed away in 1997. This book is his most famous work in which he analyzes the nature of consciousness and provides his definition for what it is as much as he can based on his evidence. I had to look up what bicameral meant. Uh, that's the word that's right there in the title. The origin of consciousness in the breakdown of the bicameral, B-I-C-A-M-E-R-A-L, bicameral mind. 
it turns out that Julian actually coined that term in this very book. Like this is the book that gave birth to that term. Bicameral means, according to Wikipedia, the condition of being divided into two chambers. It's a hypothesis in psychology that argues that the second part, or excuse me, I misspoke that. It argues that the human mind was once operated in a state in which uh, cognitive functions were divided between one part of the brain, which appears to be speaking, and a second part, which listens and obeys. So just so I can uh, give you a little bit of a leg up on where we're going to go, what it means by speaking is not the part of the brain that is in charge of the body speaking. What it means is, if you're just listening to this on the podcast, I'm using a lot of hand gestures, so this is going to get, I'm going to try to make this not confusing, but your brain is of course divided into two hemispheres, right? One side of the brain, the right side, if I've got this correct, is in charge of Um, you know, certain functions, and let's just say that that one is not in charge of the mouth or the conscious decision-making of what the body's going to do or the voice. Let's say the other side of the brain is. That side of the brain that's uh, responsible for the act of speaking, that's the one where it's saying it listens and obeys. The key thing here is where it says one part of the brain speaking is what it means is that it is a hallucinated voice inside your mind so this the right let's say the right hemisphere I think that's what it is in this book has got a structure in it that mirrors the structure on the left side of the brain that's responsible for language and the act of speaking but on this hemisphere on the opposite side it has no control over the actual act of speaking so what he posits is that that structure will generate a hallucinated voice in the mind and then the left side of the brain listens to that hallucinated voice and obeys so I know that's like a lot to try to like mess with right at the beginning but that's a fundamental idea to this book so just keep that in mind as we go on I know my wife listens to this. She's going to be like, what the hell? Because I just keep burping. I don't know what's going on. So, uh, let's see, let's see, let's see. Listens and obeys. So, the title of the book kind of sums up where the author is aiming to go. He is asserting a theory about what the early form of human mind was like and that the early makeup of the mind has changed with what he considers to be the advent of of consciousness so based on what I was saying just a moment ago about the kind of split brain thing going on in Julian's opinion that hallucinated voice would not be considered consciousness so just keep that in mind (laughs) freaking gnats Uh, let's see so like I said I've made it through just the uh, most of the stuff through this episode is just the freaking introduction, and I've got like a hundred notes on the ebook. Um, I'm gonna have to edit this out because I keep pausing. Real quick, uh, to just kind of like to reference my own book again. I, I directly reference this book and some of these concepts 
to ideas that I'm arguing in my own book. So like I said at the top, if you like this stuff, if you like these ideas, I think you'll like the book. Just keep that in mind. Consider uh, maybe patreon.com. Just saying. One of the fundamental... Let me edit that out too. One of the fundamental questions that this book aims to address is what is the consciousness that is me, you, all of us, and where did it come from and why? Which is why this book is so freaking long, because it's taken these giant concepts that there's not really any consensus on and trying to explain all of them. That's two volumes. Anyway, Julian points out in the beginning this interesting trend of our metaphors for what consciousness is being tied closely to the most recent boom in science, which I was never aware of. But here, for example, he says, Augustine, living among the amazing landscape in Carthage, refers to consciousness as vast, spacious, physical landscapes like hills, valleys, even caves. And then later, in the middle of the 19th century, apparently chemistry became like this, the you know, the sexy new science. Um, and thus, the way scientists thought about and studied the problem of consciousness was the way a chemist would analyze like a molecule as a conglomerate made up of smaller, definable, isolatable parts. This trend carried on into the advent of the steam engine, uh, describing consciousness and personality as built-up steam that must have appropriate outlets. So it's so interesting how the trend of what we perceive, like that bleeding edge of our discovery, informs, through metaphor, what we can't perceive. I just think it's interesting how we as humans are so eager to ascribe our own brand of consciousness to other living things. And the fact that it's it's so linked to what our bleeding edge discoveries are, it's like it's always right there in the background. Like even if the study of consciousness isn't the sexy science, it's linked to whatever the sexy science is. It's right there in the background. We're always wanting to discover it, even as we pursue other things. It's just kind of a interesting tidbit there. Uh, one theory on consciousness that Charles Darwin thought to be simply like fundamental, unquestionable, was that consciousness was simply a basic building block of all living things. An idea like this mirrors the concept of what is called panpsychism, the belief that everything material, however small, has an element of individual consciousness, which is also pretty similar to my own thoughts on consciousness, but we'll get into that later on. The first problem that Julian tackles is whether or not learning is the hallmark of consciousness, which there's been so many studies trying to show and or debate what can and cannot learn and what we think about that as far as consciousness goes so it's a it's a pertinent point the um the section in the book that's about this uh is actually called consciousness as learning so if you ever pick up the book the ebook this is where i'm getting it from 
Julian talks about how he tried early on in his life a test with his plant to see if he could get it to start to associate a tactile input stimulus, so like touching it, um, with a frequency of light with drooping one of its leaves. So he's trying to, it's like almost Pavlovian, he's trying to get the leaf to droop um, in response to the light eventually, like he wants that to be the cue. But like a Pavlovian approach, he's trying to associate it with other things. Um, Julian's conclusion was that the plant was not conscious as it could not learn to droop the leaf at the signal of the light. After related experiments with ever more complex organisms yielding the same results, Julian finally came to the conclusion that using the ability to learn in this way was by no means a measurement of consciousness. So he concluded early on that just if something can learn like that is not a metric one can use to determine consciousness. He says in the book, why then did so many worthies in the list of science equate consciousness and learning? And why had I been so lame of mind as to follow them? Which is pretty good. <laughs> he argues that when we introspect, acting within consciousness, introspect, you know, uh, looking inward, basically. Um, it's not uh, dependent on some conditioned learning, such as mazes or bells, you know, more almost more Pavlovian. This fundamental error in conflation of consciousness with learning, uh, known as experience, has become really embedded in the discussion of consciousness. So at this point in the book, Julian drops one of my favorite quotes, um, I even posted the quote a while back on Twitter and Instagram, which is this. He says, It is now absolutely clear that in evolution, the origin of learning and the origin of consciousness are two utterly separate problems. So that just, that just kind of sets it up. We've established that consciousness is not simply being able to learn. Um, in future, episode, uh, blah, future episodes, I'll get into... Julian's reasons for this theory because like I said he goes into what consciousness is not and learning is one of the first things he talks about and he gives all these examples as to why learning cannot be considered uh, the hallmark of consciousness but this is the assertion for right now so just keep that in mind um, also before we go on one thing I want you to keep in mind as we go through this episode the later episodes of talking about this book keep this idea in mind what is a memory that you've completely forgotten and I don't just mean like oh I know this person but I've completely forgotten their name like if you've completely forgotten that person as well what is a memory that you have completely forgotten because the way we answer that question is directly linked to the way that our brains operate. So just something, it's been on my mind as I've been thinking about this book and this content, so just keep that in mind as we go forward. Next, let's look at whether or not consciousness is a metaphysical aspect of things. 
This theory has been largely credited to Alfred Russell Wallace, who was the co-discoverer of the theory of natural selection, um, but just obviously not as popular as Charles Darwin. In a nutshell, the argument is that natural selection does not explain our desire for justice in the face of wrongdoing, the desire for certainty with which science, you know, scientists run their studies, or any other uniquely human urge. Julian points out that it seems humans evolved along similar lines as well as uh, you know, all other creatures up until a certain point and then they seem to like just take a hard left turn um, and uh, diverge and create unique these unique forms of existence that has not been repeated anywhere else in nature that we're aware of. Wallace argued that there were three distinct points at which some outside force directed evolution, which is kind of a big claim. It is at the beginning of life, the beginning of consciousness, and the beginning of civilized culture. Those are the three main points where um, Alfred Russell Wallace claims that an outside force directed that shift in humanity. This makes me think of all the theories around humans learning to uh, plant seeds and grow crops and move from hunter-gatherers to, what is that called, agrarian? I don't know what it's called, where they're, you know, they're agriculture. Um, but that's, yeah, it's, that's for a different discussion involving aliens and, and all that kind of stuff. So we'll just, we'll save that for another time. So in response to metaphysical explanations of consciousness, a materialist wave emerged, kind of the the flip side, the yin to the yang, it emerged out of this assertion that consciousness was a metaphysical thing. In the materialist view, consciousness does nothing and cannot do anything. The argument is that there is simple continuity through natural selection and at some unknown number of synaptic nerve cells, consciousness emerges. So it just kind of springs forth at, at some point. But that consciousness cannot influence anything. The analogy Ju Julian uses is consciousness being like a whistle on a train. It cannot influence the speed or the direction of that train, but it, it's part of the train. The rails of natural selection decided that route long ago. It's kind of predetermined that this was going to go this way. The issue here is that what sometimes is called the consciousness or the the conscious automaton theory is how could consciousness be so disconnected from something that it's so entwined with, like it's a fundamental aspect of human existence. And as Julian argues, why is consciousness more present when physical action ceases and then vice versa. Like the two are obviously linked and assuming consciousness is this helpless observer outside of the circumstances ignores reality. So if you think about you think about riding a bike, the more you consciously focus on the position of your hands, the position of your feet, the, the feeling of balance, like the more you think about it, the more at risk you are of wrecking. 
But if you let the conscious awareness, the decision-making kind of subside and let your body physically take control, then that this is what he's getting at. They're like these vice versa things, but they're directly related to each other. So it's kind of silly to uh, assert that consciousness is this, like he said, helpless observer of outside circumstances. So then, coming to the rescue of the helpless observer theory is the emergent evolution theory. A simple analogy is the way the quality of wetness cannot be derived from hydrogen and oxygen alone, but emerges out of the sum of those parts. So consciousness has emerged from the sum of the organism's part or inner workings. It emerges as a product greater than the sum of its parts. Apparently this explanation was greeted with incredible fanfare. Uh, some biologists even called it a new declaration of independence from physics, uh, physics and chemistry. The problem is that emergent evolution failed to answer critical questions. If consciousness emerged, when? Also, in what species did it emerge in? What kind of nervous system is required for it to emerge? Ooh. Answers to these questions would give light to the conditions that created consciousness. If we could answer those questions, then emergent evolution might, might have a foot to stand on. Around the same time, another means to explain consciousness was emerging, and that was called behaviorism. Apparently, the operating principle in behaviorism was to deny that consciousness really existed at all, rather that all behavior can be explained as reactions to input or conditions. While this theory started out as kind of a weak argument, it actually took off, influencing psychology all the way up until the 60s. With World War I still in the rearview mirror, society was longing for objective, hard facts. Success in chemistry and physics were luring, and any subjective interpretation of consciousness or anything like that was basically squashed or ignored. People were desperate for a structure they could rely on and trust in, and that couldn't, couldn't be interpreted differently. So what behaviorism amounted to was basically no more than a method of analyzing response to input, not a theory of what consciousness is. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Just kidding, I don't have any sponsors. I just need some uh, something to drink. <clears throat> All right. Now, in this part of the book, the last point that Julian brings up was a look at the reticular activating system in the brain. Reticular activating system. <clears throat> it apparently extends from the top of the spinal cord through the brain stem into the thalamus and the hypothalamus. It's directly connected to a... <laughs> it's directly connected to a whole bunch of critical neuron networks. And it's also the place where anesthesia takes effect in the brain, apparently. 
Julian points out that if this is cut, if the reticular activating system is cut, then it induces permanent sleeping coma. So, alternatively, if it's stimulated by an electrode in an animal, for example, the animal wakes up from sleep. So that that's seemed like a pretty promising um, seat of consciousness because, like it says, if you interrupt it or stimulate it, it changes your conscious, uh, your state of consciousness, either asleep permanently or waking up. However, it still doesn't solve the problem of what consciousness is for two reasons, according to Julian. One, we still have the issue of conscious experience even outside the waking state, right? And based on you know my own input, there's so many examples of, say, someone on the operating table who is under anesthesia, is unconscious by the measuring tools that we have, and yet has some kind of some kind of conscious experience of the event if not literally perceiving it even though they're out and it's not just it's not just under anesthesia there's so many instances of some kind of conscious experience that does not take place inside a conscious brain and i i mean conscious as like asleep or under anesthesia right um, second, and this is a point that Julian specifically points out, is that we would be making an error in reasoning if we draw direct lines between psychological occurrences and neuroanatomy. Julian states that even if we had a complete map of every single detail of the brain and the nervous system, we still could not infer whether or not that brain was conscious. So he's trying to say that just because we can interrupt consciousness by disturbing this one particular part of the brain does not mean that that part of the brain is the house of consciousness, or I guess I should say the seat of consciousness, and directly conflating physiological responses to specific structures your, your responses to them let me take this back Julian states that even if we had a complete map of every single detail of the brain and the nervous system we still could not infer whether or not that brain had consciousness because we cannot determine where the seat of consciousness is also disturbing the reticular activating system of the brain is not the only way to disturb the conscious experience of that brain. It's one way, obviously, but it is not a end-all solution to the question of consciousness. So we have thus far set the groundwork for how we should think about consciousness within the arguments of Julian Jaynes. And we've got a long way to go, but it's, it's going to get even better, I promise. Chapter 1 gives some really excellent uh, illustrations explaining what aspects of our lives consciousness, like I said, isn't even required for. So our idea that consciousness is this grand thing, Julian points out all these real-life examples where your conscious experience, your consciousness, is not even required for you to do it. So maybe 
consciousness is is a much smaller aspect of our life than we think but we'll get into that next episode for now that's a wrap on this so just keep these things in mind like it's, this is the the introduction the explanation of like the early studies of consciousness and where we got here of course it's not exhaustive but it's it's what julian is bringing up in the book what he references and again keep this question in mind as we go forward what is a thought that you have completely forgotten okay keep that in mind think about that all right so special thanks to karn beats for producing the music on this show as always you can reach me on godofhoneybees.com let me know what you think of the show sign up for the email version of each episode i'll send you a free sticker or a coaster uh, whichever I have available so you get a free item with the logo on it as well as links to all the sources that I reference um, to be able to go deeper into the topic and a fancy edited thanks to patience version of every episode that you can print send share do whatever you want mark up comment on whatever you want to do it's great also speaking of that if you uh, if you remember on the last episode I mentioned possibly wanting to like send physical copies of content that I'm referencing maybe down the road maybe if enough people are interested in it I'll do that but if you're listening reach out let me know what you think would you like to let's say if this episode or if this podcast came out uh, once a month to get a package that had all the source material that I'm referencing for that episode so that you can like really dive deep into what I'm talking about because I I, th- I personally I think that would be cool like I'm a huge fan of Radiolab if Radiolab was able to send me th- the major source material for their episodes so I could like dive deeper into all the topics they're going into I would definitely sign up for that so just something to keep in mind um, you can find me on in, uh, Instagram at God of Bees Podcast Twitter at G-O-H podcast, Facebook at the God of Honeybees podcast, I got that working, or you can email me directly at Podcast at gmail.com. If you like what you hear, consider throwing in five bucks a month on Patreon. Keep an eye out for the book. If you like this stuff, you'll probably like the book, um, and that'll all help keep the website, the project, all of that going. This has been God of Honeybees podcast. I'm Justin Herb. Thanks for listening.